part of our um, part of the ministry looking at Mark's gospel. And I think uh, it's great, isn't it, to thank God, first of all, in our hearts for, each, for his word, which he promises to us is living and active. Um, and let's also thank God as we consider some more of Jesus' life uh, from the gospel account of Mark, uh, that we're considering how God may be speaking to us. We're taught, as we've, we, we refer to often, uh, in the New Testament, in the letter to he- in the, the book to the Hebrews, that God spoke and taught previously long ago through the prophets, and we see the wonder and fulfilment of many of these. Um, but we also learn in those two key verses at the start of Hebrews that more recently God has spoken to us through His Son. So, if you want to learn more about God, then we need to look to Jesus, and that's where we're at in Mark's Gospel. Jesus has, has started His ministry. Um, and he has started uh, his teachings, and he's begun to show his amazing power, uh, miraculous things, healings. But we also see now that opposition to his ministry has started. And we'll read a, bit, a, few, a little bit more of that in a few verses that we'll consider this morning. Um, I just thought I'd recap a little bit, because in Mark chapter 3, verses uh, 1 to uh, 12, that we're going to read... Uh, we come straight back off a key part that David mentioned uh, a couple of weeks ago. Um, But going back a little bit further, in the first series of the talks that we're looking at in Mark's Gospel on the 8th of October, David reminded us of the scene where Jesus was being baptised by John. Um, We have a situation where we see God the Father, God the Son, and the Holy Spirit all, all present at the same time. And David reminded us at that time uh, where John the Baptist uh, and Jesus were there that that Jesus really didn't need to be baptised. John's baptism was a baptism of repentance. Jesus was sinless and so technically he had nothing, well he didn't have anything to repent for um, but as an identification as a man and with us uh, that's what he did. Jesus was the promised saviour, the Messiah. Uh, We've thought about that this morning, promised in Isaiah as Emmanuel which means God with us. But we thought regularly and many times, haven't we, that uh, he wasn't what people expected. Um, there were people in Israel who did understand. Uh, you think of Simeon uh, and, and Anna, uh, who some years earlier had recognised who Jesus was. Um, you might have expected uh, the religious leaders would have um, recognised it too. Their role, wasn't it, uh, was to help people see God and understand his plans. But we come to quite a divisive event in Mark chapter 3, and sadly they didn't recognise. And we'll understand that a little bit more in a few minutes. Um, In the previous section of our series looking at Mark, when David was talking to us about the Sabbath, um, Jesus' disciples were accused of not honouring the Sabbath um, because it was considered the day of rest, and it was. And Jesus was, by implication, being targeted as well. Uh, David was thinking about rules um, and how that may be, how that may occur to us in, in our thinking and experience. And when we consider what Christianity and what that means, sometimes we can think, well, it's just a bunch of rules. We might have a limited understanding in that regard. But um, when we consider this passage and others, we see that's not the right focus. Um, and a consideration of Jesus life and works um, brings us into a greater understanding that considering God's word is actually liberating and empowering 
One of the points that David made a couple of weeks ago was, was about common sense. God is a God of common sense. He's a God of and for people. The Bible tells us about spiritual things which uh, naturally don't, uh, are not part of our DNA, are they? It teaches us about right and wrong, right and wrong. God isn't a God of petty rules. His whole message is about love for people and how he's shown it to us in Jesus. Jesus one day summarized what's important in two statements, which we'll briefly refer to as part of our thoughts, but as we thought, God is a God of love. So in the last verses, last two verses of chapter two of Mark, verses 27 and 28, we see Jesus say, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. So the son of man is Lord even of the Sabbath. Jesus was claiming here that he was greater than the law and above the law. And he wasn't being boastful and he wasn't being full of himself. He was just being true. He was the son of God and he was Emmanuel, which means as we thought, God with us. But to the Pharisees, the rulers, uh, the, the Jewish leaders at the time, this was absolute heresy. They didn't realize that Jesus was the divine son of God who created the Sabbath. The creator is always greater than the creation and so Jesus had the authority to overrule their traditions and their arguments. Um, we'll see how the Jewish tradition had multiplied the requirements and restrictions of the keeping of the Sabbath um, and that the, bur the burden on the people had become intolerable. A Jesus teaching had cut across all of the traditions and emphasized the God-given purpose of the Sabbath, which was uh, a day intended for man for spiritual, uh, mental uh, and physical restoration. So in the passage that we're looking at, which we'll read in a second, we're at a scene in a synagogue, uh, also on a Sabbath day, a day of rest, and we've got a situation where a similar theme is being played out, where we have Jesus, who's fully engaged in his public ministry, and he comes head to head with the authorities and the prevailing thinking of the day. So the same passage, if you'd like to refer to it later, um, I think is paralleled in Matthew's Gospel 12, verses 9 to 21, and Luke's Gospel uh, chapter 6, verses 6 to 11, and 17 to 19. But let's read Mark chapter 3. Another time Jesus went into the synagogue and a man with a shriveled hand was there. Some of them were looking for a reason to accuse Jesus. So they watched him closely to see if he would heal on the Sabbath. Jesus said to the man with a shriveled hand, stand up in front of everyone. Then Jesus asked them, which is lawful on the Sabbath, to do good or to do evil, to save life or to kill? But they remained silent. He looked at them in anger and deeply distressed at their stubborn hearts, said to the man, stretch out your hand. He stretched it out and his hand was completely restored. Then the Pharisees went out and began to plot with the Herodians how they might kill Jesus. Jesus withdrew with his disciples to the lake and a large crowd from Galilee followed. When they heard all he was doing, many people came to him from Judea, Jerusalem, Idumea, and the regions across the Jordan and around Tyre and Sidon. Because of the crowd, he told his disciples to have a small boat ready for him to keep the people from crowding him. For he had healed many, so that those with for he had healed many so that those with diseases were pushing forward to touch him. Whenever the impure spirits saw him, they fell down before him and cried out, You are the Son of God. But he gave them strict orders not to tell others about him. Um, uh, let's also read, um, we're just going to jump forward a little bit, um, not strictly part of um, 
my slot, but just for, con for context, read a couple of verses in Mark chapter 12 uh, and verses 28 to 30, 28 to 34. One of the teachers of the law came and heard them debating, noticing that Jesus had given them a good answer. He asked them of all the commandments, which is the most important? The most important answer, Jesus, is this. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and all your strength. The second is this. Love your neighbour as yourself. There is, no greater com there is no commandment greater than these. I feel sorry for the man who had his hand healed. And so what I'd like us to do um, is to get our head into the story a little bit, very quickly. We're going to do a little bit of exercise, and I want you to look at your own hands as I'm going to look at my hands. And I want you to, so I'm not going to look at you, and I don't want you to look at anybody else. And for the purposes of the people who are listening to this recording, um, don't do this while you're driving or operating machinery, but look at your hands. And you look at them, and they are a thing of wonder, aren't they? Um, there's never been anywhere that you've gone where your hands haven't gone. And likewise for me. And if I turn them over um, and look at my palms um, and look at the, the opposite side and I see my fingernails um, and my knuckles, they're a thing of an amazing construct. And they've been made by the creator, by the man we've been talking about today. I'm right hand dominant, so I'm gonna put that behind my back and I'd like you to do the same. And you do, you, then you look at, for me it's my left hand, and I do the same. It's still a thing of wonder. The joint in the wrist allows the turning over of the hand, and that too is a thing of wonder. But I do, as I'm standing here, feel that, well, there's something missing. So I'm gonna bring my hands back, my right hand, as I'd invite you to do as well. Um, and you bring it back, and there's a sense of restoration. We have a man here whose hand didn't function in the normal way to the majority of people. We don't have a medical diagnosis or a full description, but just that the man's hand who's described here in the NIV is shriveled. Other versions describe it as deformed or withered. We don't know whether it was congenital, uh, if he was born with it, or if it was a result of disease. And maybe he suffered from an arthritis, um, we don't know if it was shriveled or deformed as a result of an accident. I did read somewhere that there was a thought that the man could have been a stonemason. I don't know where that came from. Or I was prompted equally this morning in our remembrance to think, well, maybe he was a carpenter. Um, but you can imagine in that line of work, an accident could crush or deform a hand easily. And there were no fracture clinics. Uh, there were no trauma operating lists. No prospect of a return to normality. Uh, and in that situation, the hand would heal, but in the wrong way. And subsequent, there might be problems with arthritis and things like that. But if there was due to an accident, there was no prospect of corrective surgery, or uh, there was no advanced uh, pharma. Uh, there was not an advanced pharmacy business um, or drug system, and no developed physiotherapy service. So whatever the situation, the man was likely dependent on others for many aspects of his life. Uh, he may have suffered abuse, ridicule. Uh, he may have been shunned by society. He may have, su may have suffered mentally in any one of many ways that could manifest itself as a result of his physical situation. 
If you look up the Hebrew word for shriveled, it gives the thought of to dry up, of an arid place, a place of shrunken earth. Uh, we've all seen pictures of dried up riverbeds, haven't we? Uh, so it's a place where there's little possibility of life. That's what his hand was like, this shriveled hand. So it helps reinforce our thoughts that the man's hand was in a bit of a state. Um, and uh, we see Jesus here um, about to be trapped or potentially about to be trapped. As I read the passage, three things stood out in my mind. Um, one, wrong motives. Two, challenging understanding or challenging current understanding and being under pressure. Jesus was watched very closely, wasn't he? So looking at wrong motives. In the passage, we see hostility to Jesus continue to spread. Um, already, many of the, the religious leaders had turned against him and become uh, his enemies. The Pharisees were a Jewish religious group that zealously followed Old Testament, Old Testament laws uh, as well as their own religious traditions. They were really highly respected in the community, but they hated Jesus because he challenged their proud attitudes uh, and their dishonorable motives. Um, earlier in chapter two, we see a furore in the story of the healing of the paralytic man, where Jesus claims to have power to forgive sins. And that stable is labeled as blasphemous because only God had that ability. And yet the Pharisees didn't realize that Jesus was God here as a man. Um, the Pharisees were jealous of Jesus' popularity, his miracles, uh, and the authority in his teaching and his actions. There's a man here with a withered hand. It's non-functioning, it's not useful, and he gets healed, totally restored. We don't read of any celebration, and I'm sure there was some celebration, but we don't read of it, because the focus here is in a totally different place. The focus is on entrapment and the plotting of murder as a result of their insecurity and their thirst for power. And the focus is definitely not on uh, the healing event. Ironically, uh, the Pharisees themselves, who were up in arms about Jesus healing the man, were breaking God's law by plotting murder themselves. What about the challenge to uh, our understanding? That's my next summary point in reading the first six verses. Um, we all need our understanding challenge from time to time, don't we? Probably all the time. Um, it's a Sabbath day, the day where the people were expected to rest and to do no physical work, but to worship God. And we're in a synagogue and there's a man who had a serious problem with his hand. And it's a place of worship and supposed by implication, a place of rest on that day, a place of hope and a place of love. But unfortunately, in this story, <coughs> we don't read about these great <coughs> aspirations. We understand, we understand it's a situation of accusation uh, and negative scrutiny, a place where Jesus is under intense pressured scrutiny. The Pharisees had classified um, over 600 laws and they often tried to distinguish the more important uh, from the less important. I was reading a note the other day that said, by Jesus' time, the Jews had accumulated 613 rules or commandments, as they put it. Um, some of the teachers of the, Lord, of the law 
taught they were all equally binding and that it was dangerous to make any distinctions. And you certainly come away from Jesus' encounter here um, and think, well, well, he was certainly afforded no wiggle room, was he at all? And the Pharisees were placing their laws above human need. There was a man who had a real need um, and with a, with, a, with a son of God in front of him who was about to meet that need. The Pharisees were so concerned about breaking one of their rules that they didn't care about the man with the deformed hand. My next summary point was um, being under pressure. Um, hand up if you know, in your, in your mind, if you know what it's like to be under pressure. I think we probably all do. Hands up if you know what it's, you're, on, you're under pressure because you're being watched closely. Um, there was absolutely no doubt that the Pharisees believed uh, in Jesus' power to perform miracles. Uh, there'd been many instances already. So the question was not could he heal, but the question was would he heal? Um, the tradition, the Jewish tradition at the time prescribed that aid could be given to the sick on the Sabbath only uh, when the person's life was threatened, which obviously wasn't the case here. Um, they said that healing was practicing medicine and people couldn't practice their professions on the Sabbath. The practice of medicine was only allowed on that day if it was feared that the victim would die before the subsequent day. So if Jesus had waited another day from his side, he would have been submitting to the Pharisees' authority and showing that their petty rules were equal to God's law. However, if he did heal the man on the Sabbath, the Pharisees could claim that because Jesus broke their rules, his power wasn't from God. It, it reminded me of the story of uh, the woman who was caught in sin. Um, and there were people about to stone the lady. Um, and Jesus said, um, as they were about to do that, Jesus said, let he, he who is without sin cast the first stone. And Jesus was the absolute master of, uh, of truth um, and of delivery, I would suggest. Um, and we have here in the same point that uh, he puts across a point about what was lawful on the Sabbath. Jesus evidenced his true identity again through his wisdom and his power here. He knew what the leaders were thinking. He'd read their minds and he asked a really, really wise and challenging question. I think it's fair to say he was the wisest man that ever lived. Um, he healed the man's hand. Uh, we do live in a time, don't we, where we hear of some miraculous uh, healings that happen. Um, and, and we know that Jesus came and one of the ways he had to evidence who he was was by doing these miracles. But there are, we've, we've thought about the first two verses in Hebrews chapter 1, uh, where in the last days Jesus has spoken to us through his son. And there's the reference there to how Jesus was involved in creation and created all things. Later in this passage, Jesus withdraws from the synagogue before a major confrontation develops. Um, he certainly had come for a reason, but it wasn't yet his time to die. People had come from miles and miles, tens of miles, to see him from all over Israel. Um, and I think if you or I had an illness, something that was debilitating at the time, 
and we could, be, we could be miraculously sorted, we would have been there like a shot, wouldn't we? Um, there was an extent, like we've said, that Jesus had to evidence who he really was. God incarnate, God as a man, the creator of everything. Um, and so his miracles were an ample evidence of that. He'd come to show God and to evidence his eternal purposes of love by dying on the cross for our sins. But as we know, it wasn't time for that yet. A lot of people came for his miracles. Some came to hear his teaching. But at that point, um, his way and his, and his plan for dying on the cross wasn't um, evident. Um, Jesus wanted the real reason for his coming to be understood. And we've read that there were evil spirits there who knew that Jesus was with the Son of God. Evil spirits clearly had no intention of following him, but they were just that, weren't they? And you have evil spirits being confronted of by the Holy Son of God. Um, Jesus warned the evil spirits for good reason not to reveal who he was, partly because his time hadn't come, um, and also because they were hardly the correct channel for the delivery of such a message. Jesus didn't want um, a popular misconception to be, in re to be reinforced in that the people were looking for something, weren't they? Um, they were under occupation. They were pinned down by unnecessary rules. They were looking for a political and military leader who would free them from Rome's control. And they thought that the Messiah predicted by uh, Old Testament prophets would be that kind of man. Jesus wanted to teach the people about the kind of Messiah he really was, one who was far different from their expectations. Turn, me, turn with me, would you please, to a few um, pages earlier than Mark chapter 3 in your Bible, to Matthew's account in just in chapter 12. Um, it's a parallel part of this story, and this is from Matthew's point of view. But there are um, an interesting... Um, parallel uh, in his encounter. So Matthew chapter 12 verses 14 um, to 20. The Pharisees went out and plotted how they might kill Jesus. Aware of this, Jesus withdrew from that place. A large crowd followed him and he healed all who were ill. He warned them not to tell others about him. This was to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet Isaiah. Here is my servant who I have chosen, the one I love, in whom I delight. I will put my spirit on him, and he will proclaim justice to the nations. He will not quarrel or cry out. No one will hear his voice in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break, and a smouldering wick he will not snuff out, till he has brought justice through to victory. In his name the nations will put their hope. That's a quotation from Isaiah's prophecy. prophecy. Um, in chapter 42, verses 1 to 4, hundreds of year be years before. And it shows, indeed, the Messiah was indeed a king, but it was a different kind of king to the one that the people were expecting. They were expecting, as we thought, a, a political and military leader. But this prophecy indicates um, and evidences what happened in Jesus' treatment that you hear of the Pharisees and how he reacted, that there's a gentle ruler. He was a gentle ruler to bring justice to the nations. Um, like the crowds in Jesus' day, we he may have thoughts or expectations of grand things, but often Christ's work is, quite, is quiet and it happens according to his timing and not to ours. Um, 
Jesus' kingdom begins with the overthrow of sin in people's hearts and not with the overthrow of governments. Um, There's no doubt that Jesus was a person, was he? We have it here in God's word. There are thousands of historical records that attest to his being here, to his being here. And the question that's relevant to the story and a question for all of us uh, is, who is he? The personal question for us to answer is, was he who he claimed to be? Was he the son of God? Which leads us to, why did he come to the earth? What was his true purpose? The people in the latter few verses were getting mixed up. They just wanted healing. Um, they didn't see the true purpose. But Jesus came for your sin and my sin, didn't he? That we might be made right with God. Just some things to consider before we finish. Um, what can we take from the story that's relevant? Point one, rest. God created the concept of the Sabbath day for our benefit, for physical, mental, spiritual restoration. How do we fit that into our schedule? Number two, wrong motives uh, and focus. Uh, the Pharisees were focused on the wrong things. Um, we can all focus on the wrong things, can't we? For the Pharisees, Sabbath rules have become more important than Sabbath rest. Um, we all focus on something. What are you and I going to positively and intentionally focus on? Um, how about having in our minds the two greatest commandments? Loving the Lord our God with all our heart and all our soul and loving our neighbour and ourselves. The thought is that if we focus on those two, then we'll be uh, on the right track. What about challenging our understanding? Sometimes we have the wrong understanding about situations, don't we? We can take that as a point to consider from this story. What about being under pressure? What about being watched? Jesus was watched. They wanted to trap him. Um, when we're under pressure, um, how do we act? When we're under pressure to evidence our faith, how do we act? Gratitude is my fifth point. Um, I'm grateful for my hands, having considered them a little bit more over the last couple of weeks, being grateful for what we take for granted and grateful for little things. Some final, final points. Um, the prophecy uh, in Matthew, uh, which talked about a, um, a gentle and a kind ruler. Um, and, and we'll read those verses again. Matthew, Matthew 12, and verses 20. Verse 20. A bruised reed he will not break, and a smouldering wick he will not, stuff, he will not snuff out. Um, I read some thoughts around these verses. Um, do you feel like a bruised reed, like one of those big flowers that seems heavy and the stem's been squashed so that the flower flops and gets no water? Do you feel your faith is just a little spark and not a flame, like the red dot at the end of the wick after you blow out a birthday candle? The Bible tells us that the spirit of Christ is a spirit of encouragement. It might feel that we're only a spark instead of a roaring flame. But there's a big difference between a spark and a flame. Uh, there's a big difference between a spark and a flame, but there's an absolute infinite difference between a spark and no spark. A mustard, see a mustard seed of faith is infinitely closer to being a mountain of faith than it is to being no faith. And there's the encouragement to review God's promises that we have in this book, uh, which as we understand it more, makes us believe more 
how living and active it is. Uh, we referenced the first talk in this series uh, on the 8th of, of October, where we have the encounter between Jesus and John the Baptist. Um, years earlier, their mothers had met. They were cousins. Mary had been told of the news that she'd been chosen to be the mother of the Lord, and Elizabeth was pregnant in her old age. And at that meeting, and both of them were miracles, um, at that meeting, um, we read of how the baby, that's John, in Elizabeth's womb, leapt because he was in the presence of the Saviour who was yet to be born. And there was a, not necessarily a meeting, but a coming together of the two. And years later, we hear and we read of Jesus at the start of his ministry. Both Elizabeth uh, and both Mary were just little ordinary people who were to be used in God's purposes. And a little time later, Mary and Joseph uh, travelled to Bethlehem. They're just little people too. Uh, God creates uh, a census of the whole Roman world for two people to move 70 miles from um, Nazareth to Bethlehem. Jesus said that he came not for the righteous, but for the unrighteous, not for people who thought that they were righteous. He comes for people who, or he came for people who recognised that before him um, they were sinners. So final part, final comments, as we get full on into the Christmas season, let's remember the real reason for the season. Final point about the man's hand. Uh, it was lifeless and it was withered. It was an arid place. And an encounter with Jesus changed all that and brought life. Um, in the world that we live in, that refreshment can become a daily joy if we let it.